Tonight I thought I would speak about equanimity. And I chose this topic for this evening because I thought it might be relevant to some of the things that are going on here at the retreat this uh, today and maybe tomorrow and the next day <laughs> because we're in uh, a period of transition. I don't have to tell you that. I'm sure that you feel it. There are people who are leaving. Tomorrow there will be people who are arriving. There are people who are staying. I think, what is Marcia said this morning? Neither going nor arriving or something, some great Zen pointing out instruction. (laughs) So um, those that are leaving, this uh, equanimity theme will be very good to reflect on in terms of your, what you're going into in your daily life. And for those of you who are staying, it's very good for you to practice during these next few days as you go through this change of the retreat here. Um, just for you to know, um, there are 40 people who are staying. There are about 18 people who are leaving and about 37 people arriving. So it's going to be a change for us, change in the energy, change in uh, just some of the things that happened in your own experience, in your own practice. And so equanimity is really a good practice because we can do this particular practice when we want things to be different than they are. Anytime we want whatever conditions are arising to be different than they are, This is an opportunity for equanimity practice. (laughs) And I want to talk about this this evening so we can actually understand a little bit more how to actually apply this practice in our life. Generally, we do need some kind of tension in the conditions in order to actually practice equanimity. Um, You know, when things are easy and comfortable and we like what's happening and we feel the, the pleasure of what's happening, things are going our way and the conditions are supportive. You know, it's easy just to be kind of balanced and at ease in ourselves at, at those times. But when there are things happening that we don't necessarily like or want to have happen, then we need to practice. We need to pay attention to see what's actually going on so that we can perhaps bring about more balance in our experience. Sometimes, too, we need to test our equanimity. We may have an idea uh, that we're pretty balanced or we're pretty um, uh, equanimous, <laughs> And actually, when we start to shift the conditions, we find out how equanimous we are. In fact, that's really something that happens when we come into a retreat form because so many things are taken away from us, the usual uh, patterns and things that we uh, find to distract ourselves or to uh, find pleasure with. It's all taken away. And you're really left with yourself in a very simple, bare-down way with the sitting and the walking. And so you're left with yourself. And this is, in a way, this is a test. It's a test of your balance, of your equanimity. 
So what is equanimity and how do we practice it? Usually the definition of equanimity is an unconditional acceptance of the way things are. An unconditional acceptance. Or sometimes it's called, equanimity is called a non-reactive mind. So a mind that isn't getting caught up in grasping and aversion and controlling and manipulating. Sometimes called an unshakable balance of mind that is supported by insight into the way things are. It's supported by seeing things clearly. And when we see things clearly, we're not as reactive. We're more allowing, more accepting, more equanimous. Sometimes equanimity is defined as the stillness of an unmoving mind. A mind, because the moving mind is a mind that moves in reactivity. And when the mind isn't reactive, it's still, it's quiet, it stays home. Doesn't it does it minds its own business. This is equanimity. How has your equanimity been today? Just take a moment and reflect how you how you've been, whether you're the people leaving or the people staying. The the definition of equanimity really points to something very beautiful. It's a beautiful state of mind. And yet it's not easy. It's not easy to be non-reactive. And the reason is because usually we're identified with our small sense of self. We're identified with our ego. And ego is always in reaction. Because ego thinks it can control and manipulate and get what it wants and have things the way it wants and, you know, create the reality that it wants. And that's, that's what egos do. You know, that's just the, the, the nature of ego. So if we're identified with that aspect of our mind, that's what we're going to experience. We're going to experience the controlling and reactivity and manipulation of conditions. And we want to manipulate conditions so that we actually get more of what we want. And that, uh, referring back to the Dharma talk I gave, I think it was well, two, the two Dharma talks ago, you know, wanting more of the pleasurable or agreeable things and wanting less of the disagreeable and the uncomfortable things. That's what egos do. That's how it spends its time, <laughs> its activity. Sometimes, though, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, sometimes it works. And I say unfortunately because then we get deceived and we think, well, if it worked that time, how come it doesn't work again? How come it won't work this time? Because then we don't, you know, then we're not really looking deep enough to see, well, what's really going on here? Where am I coming from? What am I touching into that I'm responding in this way? Because the truth is, conditions are outside of our control. And perhaps that's an insight that you've had on this retreat so far. The arising and passing of conditions, they come uninvited, they leave uninvited, they do their own thing. Conditions come and go. They're outside of our control. One time when I was... uh, I, I taught uh, many years in, in Bodh Gaya in India, 
at the Thai Temple in January. And uh, I've taught, taught there about 15 winters. I, I haven't been back for about four years. But India is a great place to practice equanimity. I don't know. There's probably some people here who've been to India or developing countries where it is, it's very, there's, it's very, conditions are very challenging. And this one particular occasion, you know, we, we get very spoiled here in the West when we sit on retreats because generally it's, you know, very supportive and very quiet and um, uh, the conditions really are, are, are pleasant mostly. The, the external conditions are very pleasant for our practice. This one year um, in January is also when uh, about, oh, 10,000 Tibetans and uh, Bhutanese and all these different pilgrims come into the small town of Bodhgaya where there aren't enough facilities for 10,000 people to enter in and to do, Bodhgaya is the place where the Buddha was enlightened and there's the Mahabodhi temple and people go there and do pujas and prayers and blessings and it's very, very special and very auspicious for people to come to Bodhgaya and to practice and to be at the place where the Buddha was enlightened. And we would do our retreat. We teach our retreat uh, each January when we have this influx of all these pilgrims. And this one particular year, it didn't happen very often, but this one particular year, right across from the Thai temple where we were doing our retreat, some, some Tibetans set up a little travel agency and um, put uh, on a tape with a loudspeaker. And um, we really were... <laughs> It really went into our grounds, and so it was on almost the whole day, maybe with some breaks, but it went something um, like this. <laughs> hello, hello. Gaya, Gaya, And then it would stop for a couple of minutes, and then, hello, hello. Gaya, Bagaya, Gia, Gaya, Deli, good, and it went all day, <laughs> except, you know, maybe an hour here or there. And it was loud. <laughs> and this was pushing us, <laughs> testing us, all of us, you know, how to sit and meditate. It's, 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 it's. It was the repetition, you know, the repetition of the same thing over and over and over again, and with no escape, no way out. And, I mean, there was nothing we could do. I Maybe at some point we, you know, the, t- the, the teacher teaching team thought maybe we could go over and talk to the t- Tibetan and, you know, tell them to stop it or something. But, I mean, nothing really worked. It went on for about three or four days. And uh, that was the retreat. You know, it was really working with our relationship to this annoying (laughs) and very disturbing tape that was going again and again. Sometimes that's what's thrown up, these kind of these very difficult conditions. You know, you go and you, you have the opportunity to do a retreat. It's a very precious time. And then this happens. We don't like it. We don't want it. We can do get into all kinds of arguments with uh, with ourselves and with the other people who are responsible. What happens in the mind when we get into all this reactivity? 
I mean, essentially the thought is, I don't want this to be happening. And that thought can have all different kinds of degrees of, of, of volume and intensity. You know, I don't want this to be happening can be a kind of mild irritation. You know, we just sort of feel a little bit irritated or upset. Or our minds could be screaming, I don't want this to be happening. You know, then we can get into um, anger and rage. Sometimes that anger is a self-righteous anger. I know best. This isn't right. I'm going to change this. We can blame the other people. They're wrong. We get in all kinds of, of knots with ourselves. And yet when we're actually on retreat, the form supports us not acting out from those feelings and those in those in, through speech and through action, which is what usually happens in our daily life when we're not being mindful or we're not paying attention. We just get caught in all these reactive habits of mind. It should be like this. You know that one. It should be like this, the way I want it to be. You know, this the demands of the ego, ego mind. And if we really let ourselves feel it, we may then begin to feel a little even more out of control. You know, we feel that kind of that out of controlness. And then as we feel it, we may begin to feel some helplessness. So particularly if we're in a form such as this and we're really practicing, we, then we feel how helpless we are. There's nothing I can do and I don't like it and I want it to be different. We can get into real uh, places of uh, grief and sorrow with ourselves and Nothing we can do. Conditions are the way they are. Eventually, maybe we'll let go. That's the hope. (laughs) That's the hope, is that we realize that ultimately we need to let go and stop fighting. This um, wonderful cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes. Some of you might be Calvin and Hobbes fans. I mean, they're just wonderful and Calvin is um, just kind of looking down at the ground. He's got a sled behind him, and it's just bare grass. He's just looking down, and then he looks up, and he says, if I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May. And then he looks up, and he says, on three, ready, one, two, three, snow. (laughs) You know, like he can command the snow to come. And the next image, he's just kind of, looking ahead again, kind of, you know, with a straight look, and nothing happened, you know. And then he looks up again. He says, I said snow. Come on, snow. And then he's yelling and going into a temper temper tantrum and snow. And then he stops and folds his arm and says, okay, then, don't snow. (laughs) See what I care. I like this weather. Let's have it forever. (laughs) And then he's down on his knees, and he's praying. He says, please, no, please, just a foot. Okay, eight inches. That's all. Come on, six inches. Even, how about just six? You know, the whole bargaining thing. You know, maybe if we bargain, then we can get what we want, right? And the next frame, he's looking up again. He's saying, I'm waiting. (laughs) You know, like nothing's happening. He's not getting what he wants. And the next frame, he's running around in circles. Another temper tantrum, just, you know, it's like he can't stand that he's not getting what he wants. And in the next picture, he's exhausted, worn out, just fed up, just like tongue hanging out. (laughs) 
And then in the very last frame, he's looking up again at the, the man, right? And he's saying, do you want me to become an atheist? <laughs> His last try, you know. <laughs> Maybe then God will come down and you'll make it snow. This is what we do, isn't it? You know, it's the reactive mind. We'll do anything to get what we want because somehow we think that thing is really then going to help us feel balanced, you know, bring us back to some level of ease or comfort in ourselves. Not knowing, not seeing clearly that that isn't it. That isn't what's going to do it. That we have to look deeper. We have to be more present with our experience to see what actually can be discovered, which will bring true equanimity, true balance of mind. One time, um, I think Rebecca told a story about um, some machines or something that were outside while she was doing her practice here. One year in my early um, years of practice, um, on a three-month retreat, Right over there, uh, by the by the where it used to be a swimming pool, actually, there, before they filled it in with dirt in the seventies, um, there was a pipe that broke, and this is like almost right in the middle of the three month retreat. People were quite quiet, you know, quite concentrated, and and the, the a pipe broke, and they needed to fix the pipe, so they had diggers, you know, little uh, mechanical diggers out there. Um, for about three days, again, you know, just um, digging and pounding, clam, 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 and then the machine digging, digging, you know. And if you, no matter where you went in the whole building, it's not like you could escape, like go to your room or, you know, go somewhere. It, it just was, had to be done, you know. I was, at this time in my uh, early years of my practice, I was extremely aversive. And uh, things really bugged me. So I just really didn't like this. I was really upset and really aversive. And I'd come, come in here and just feel so angry and so contracted. It was wrong. It should not be happening on a three-month meditation retreat. You know, there must be some other solution. You know, the reason we're here is for deepening our concentration and to have quiet and, you know, all this kind of justification Obviously, it didn't help at all. So I decided to listen to the instructions of the teachers, and I actually paid attention <laughs> to my reactive mind. And so I, I invited it, actually. I sat down. I remember I was, was sitting right over there. Um, sat down and just paid attention to what was happening. Listen, just as much as I could, I opened to the sound as painful and unpleasant as it was, I just kept listening and listening and listening. And after about about 20 minutes or half an hour, one of these sittings, um, the sound started changing. It wasn't actually so unpleasant anymore. And I sat with it, and all of a sudden, the sound started sounding like Tibetan bells. It was just this lovely kind of m- melodious, just ringing, beautiful, s- like symphonies of sounds, just so beautiful and heartwarming. And I'm sitting there <laughs> going, oh, 
maybe there's something to this. You know, maybe that a lot of the contraction and a lot of the pain was the aversion that I was actually bringing to the experience. And when I actually really listened in a very bare way, in a very simple way, it was actually very beautiful. And I think this happens for us a lot of times. You know, when we get out of the way, when the eye gets out of the way of, you know, demanding and, and, and wanting things to be a particular way, a whole different kind of experience is possible for us. We, the mind can't even imagine. Who would imagine? Tibetan bells, you know? Somebody would have told me that. I would have thought they were crazy, you know? But it was true. We don't know. So what's actually happening there is there's the bare contact of the sound at the ear door and then the knowing of it. Just the simple consciousness, the knowing of the sound. There may be the feeling, in this case, the feeling tone was unpleasant, unpleasant. Without paying attention to the actual quality, the feeling tone... can come in the reaction or the habit of the conditioned habit of grasping. Grasping either the wanting or the not wanting, the wanting to be different or the aversion of pushing away. This is where the self, this is the self, the grasping, the manipulating is the manifestation of the self that then tries to control and manipulate experience and then tries to get it to be pleasant again that wants to do everything it possibly can to get back to a pleasant experience. But if I'm just feeling the unpleasant feeling tone that's arising in the experience, just the bare feeling, or it may even just be the bare feeling of the resistance without putting more resistance on top of it, but just kind of getting to what's the bare experience there, I can then begin to actually feel my experience without the grasping arising, the grasping to want things to be different. And then I might be able to ask myself, which is one of the questions I asked myself in this experience, is what is it about this situation that makes it so hard to be present? What's happening that's so difficult to be present with this? And that became really a question I asked again and again and again when I really found myself in some kind of struggle, some kind of difficulty to stay present with myself or really stay in contact with my experience. What's happening right now that it's so hard to be here? Sometimes I would find out that it actually wasn't much more than just a mental idea of how I wanted things to be. And when I really came into my experience, it was actually just fine. I had some people tell me that in interviews, too, that they're discovering that. that they say, well, you know, when I actually feel my experience, it's, it's okay. It's just my mind that gets in there and makes so much trouble, you know, wants things to be different or, or is afraid of the way things are. So, but then, you know, if I stop for a moment and feel, I'm actually okay. And this is what we start to discover, the difference between sort of the bare reality We call it the bare reality and the bare attention to that reality and the overlay, what we put on top of our experience. 
There's a wonderful teaching, one of my favorite teachings from the Samyutta Nikaya, um, uh, called the Dart. I think it was. It's been an important discourse from the Buddha for me. Because the Buddha asks this question, he says to his bhikkhus, he says, bhikkhus, what's the difference between an unenlightened disciple and a noble, enlightened one? He says they both experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So what's the difference? It's not in the feelings. What's the difference? And then he goes on to say, when an unenlightened being encounters unpleasant feeling, he sorrows, grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, becomes distraught. And the Buddha said, this person, this experiences two kinds of painful feelings, one in the body and one in the mind. He says it's as if an archer, after firing one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow, that man would experience pain from both arrows. He experiences two kinds of pain, one in the body and one in the mind. Then he goes on to say that a noble one, a noble enlightened one, encounter when they encounter, when he encounters unpleasant feeling, He neither sorrows, grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, or becomes distraught. He experiences only one kind of painful feeling, the bodily feeling, the pain in the body but not in the mind. He says, it's just as if an archer having shot one arrow into a certain man were to shoot a second arrow but miss the mark. That man would experience pain only from one arrow. He experiences pain only in the body, but not in the mind. I really love that teaching because, in a way, we keep shooting that arrow, that second arrow. If we just feel or sense or experience just the the felt sense of the bare experience, whether it's in the body, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, the unpleasant experience, without the overlay of our mind, it would just be the unpleasant feeling. But because we don't see clearly sometimes, we keep shooting that second arrow. We don't realize that we're bringing all that extra pain to ourselves. the second arrow kind of pain, not just in the body, but also in the mind. And I like to extrapolate that teaching because sometimes the mind, the thought, will just arise and it's just an unpleasant thought. And then we shoot the second arrow. It's like, I shouldn't be having that thought, or that's a stupid thought, or why do I have that thought, or why do I keep proliferating these thoughts, and why can't I just... The second arrow, or the third arrow, or the fourth arrow, or the fifth arrow, we get very good at that. But as we start to understand more clearly what we're actually doing, it's not that we're getting rid of painful feeling. We just have a whole different way of relating to it. It's just what it is. Things are just the way they are. This is how we start to bring a whole different relationship to our experience 
and begin to experience much more balance because it's really the mental activity and the mental proliferation that throws us off of balance. And with all that mental activity comes along all the difficult emotional responses of fear and anger and sorrow and grief, all that we get caught in that interrelated response of mind and emotions, and we lose our balance. We lose touch with the very simple and bare experience of what is. So in some ways, acceptance is the first step. Acceptance really is the first step, coming to a place where we can allow whatever is happening to happen, bringing, gathering all of our resources so that we can feel a quality of acceptance with what is. I say it's the first step because it's not the last step. The last step is the cultivation of wisdom and being able to respond clearly and and wisely in our life. But acceptance is really what brings that possibility that we can begin to see things clearly. Otherwise, we're just fighting and we're caught in the position of our ego and we really can't draw on the resources of our wisdom. Somebody asked somebody. Somebody asked a, a, a wise being, an enlightened being, uh, "What is the sign of an enlightened being?" And the master responded, "An appropriate response, because when we are present and when we're connected, we are connected to our resources." that know how to respond more clearly and more directly to what's happening in the moment. When we're not so connected and so present, we don't have access to those resources. We may not know how to respond. So as we get more present and connected and more connected to our wisdom, we generally are navigating in our world much more wisely, more consciously, more resourcefully. This is the benefit, this is the outcome of our practice. But this acceptance is not a passive acceptance. It's not an acceptance that says, there is nothing I can do, I better get used to the way things are. It's not that kind of acceptance. Because that just reinforces a sense of hopelessness and and then a lack of a sense that I'm able to to take action in my life. It it, uh, interferes with a sense of will and intentionality in our life. We fall into those pits of, of hopelessness. This is passivity. It's not equanimity. Equanimity is closer to a patient acceptance. A patient acceptance that says, I accept this because it's happening. I accept this because it's the truth of this moment. Whether I like it or not, I accept it because it's real right now. Another one of my elder teachers, Byron Katie, has a wonderful line that goes, reality is the highest order 
Reality is the highest order. And if you want to fight with that, you're going to be in trouble. And reality is this moment right now. What's happening now? That's what we mean by reality. That's the highest order. Patient acceptance works because I'm not looking for anything to go away. Rather, what, what is happening is I'm simply changing my view of things. It's not that the situation necessarily changes. My mind changes. I change my mind or, or my perception of the way things are changes. That's what changes. This is what releases my hold on life when I start to change the way I'm seeing things, the way I'm perceiving things. That's where the freedom comes. That's where the equanimity comes. Because I'm letting go of that fixed view, that attached view of the way I think things are or need to be. And I'm opening, softening to reality and the way things are. But when we do this, when we open in this way, then as we touch this balance or this equanimity, what comes along with it is vulnerability. And I think that this is sometimes confusing because when we feel vulnerable, we sometimes might think something's wrong or blame ourselves in some way. Or we think we have to have some kind of idea of being strong or, you know, together or... Uh, directed in our life, you know, which really is another image. It's another identity that we can take on. But when we really start to touch into life just as it is in in this tender, fragile way, we feel our own vulnerability sometimes. We feel our fragility of this openness. And what happens is, is we're, we're letting life impact us. We're letting life touch us. We're, we're allowing our heart to be moved by the conditions in this world, the conditions of our life. We're not shutting out. We're not defending. We're not cutting off. We're saying, yes, I want to engage with reality the way it is, in an honest way, in a radical way, in a direct way. And sometimes the conditions can be so strong, and we know this, or so intense, uh, life impacts in, in very, very painful and very challenging ways. And sometimes we wonder whether our heart will be able to bear it. If I stay open to this, will my heart be able to bear it? Sometimes we, it's a great wonder, it's a great mystery that the human heart can bear what happens in this world, and that people survive some of the very, very difficult situations that they find themselves in. But yet, this is what we are asked to do, to see if we can keep our heart open to life, to not close off, but to be wise, to be smart in the way that we navigate ourselves in our, in our world. Ajahn Sumedho talks about life being like standing under a waterfall, Can you imagine standing under a waterfall? I mean, the impact, the power of that. And sometimes it feels that way. And can we just open to that? Open to the way. And sometimes we can't, and that's okay too. We're, 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 We're responding wisely and consciously to the way things are, even how we change and how we are within ourselves as well. Sometimes we may not just, we may not have the capacity to do that. 
And so we have to pull back a little bit, but there's wisdom in this. As we open to life, can we find balance? This is the question. In fact, it's, for me, it's really the, the quest, in a way, of the spiritual journey. Can I find balance? Because balance means that I have a foundation in, of my being, I have a gro- I've, I've, I'm in contact with the ground of my being, which is connected to my nature, to my innate nature, to my wisdom, to my resources of my being, of my Buddha nature. That's what gives me the ground to stand on where I start to feel some balance in myself. As we open and we feel this vulnerability we start to acknowledge more and more that we don't know what's going to happen. Ego mind does not like to acknowledge that we don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) It wants to know. It wants to be sure. It wants to have some sense of how things are going to unfold and what's going to happen. But in that vulnerability, really don't know, do we? We don't know what's going to happen in the next instant or the next hour, the next 24 hours, the next month or whatever. And when we start to let this in, we feel our vulnerability as well. We're constantly moving into the unknown every moment. One of my teachers used the example of like going into the unknown is like riding on a train sitting backwards, so sitting with your back in the direction that the train's going in. And as you look out the window, you're actually seeing what the train is passing, but you don't know where the train's going. You can't see where the train's going. And it's kind of like that. You know, you have some sense of reality and what's happening here, but where's the train going? (laughs) You know, as you really let yourself feel that. We don't know. So openness and vulnerability, fragility, as we touch into more of our resources that uh, help us connect with the truth of what is, the reality of what is. This is one of my favorite stories, which I first heard on a retreat about 25 years ago. And... um, it really points to the power of this equanimity. It's about the warlord and the Zen master. There was a fierce warlord with a band of men who was pillaging and rampaging the countryside. People would hear of this and flee in terror. He arrived at one village where there was a monastery and discovered that all the people had fled and all the monks had fled, except one, the Zen master. Upon hearing this, <laughs> upon hearing this, the warlord was incensed that there was someone who wasn't afraid of him. So he storms off to the monastery in fury and finds the Zen master sitting in the zendo. He strides up, unsheathes his sword, and says, Don't you know that I am one that can run you through with this sword without blinking an eye? And the Zen master looks at him straight in the eye and says, Don't you know that I am one who can be run through with that sword without blinking an eye? 
and the warlord was so moved by the Zen master's equanimity, he laid his sword at his feet and bowed. Powerful. When we are in contact with that nature that is nothing can harm, nothing can hurt. So these kinds of stories are very inspiring for what's possible for us on our path. And though for some of us, we can also have a different response, like I did when I first heard the story, which was, oh, God, <laughs> I'll never be like that. I have so far to go. You know, I'm ne- I may as well give up right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I looked back at who I was at that time and the, the power in that story, I mean, I could have just given up, you know. It was just like throw in the towel. And I think that can happen, you know, particularly when we hear these stories of the Buddha and all these great masters and what's possible on the path. And yet if I begin to identify with a kind of image about how I should be, you know, as a good Buddhist or a good practitioner or how I'm supposed to be in my life, it's just another way of rejecting myself, another way of grasping at an image or an idea of who I'm supposed to be, and then I'm caught again. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm disconnected from the ground of my being, from the, tr- the, tr- the truth of who I really am. And this creates more suffering and more inner pressure for us. So that doesn't work. We can't put on an idea of how to be equanimous or how I'm supposed to be now that, you know, now that I know that this is, this is where the, what the teachings are pointing to. We get these ideas, you know, very easily of how good Buddhists are supposed to be, you know, still and quiet and loving and calm and non-reactive and, and accepting and all the things that, you know, describe equanimity. But then this just, then we just start suppressing our reactions and cutting off our emotions and uh, pushing ourselves further into ego and self-image. And this doesn't help. It doesn't get us any further along the way. We start to have an idea that reactivity is wrong, that somehow it's bad, I shouldn't be doing that, and then we're caught again. Some of you may have heard of the phrase um, spiritual bypassing. And I think this is a great phrase that's been coined in the last uh, uh, few decades because basically that's what happens when we get these ideas about how we're supposed to be as good Buddhists and we use the practice then to cut off And we're cutting off from this whole rich environment of all the aspects of ourselves which we can learn from and grow from and develop and understand and and really, really become a, a stronger, wiser person. But if we just kind of keep saying, nope, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to look at that, I'm not going to go there, we cut off from our potential of our growth on our path. Detachment is such a high ideal in Buddhist practice, the word detachment. And we can so easily start to find ourselves acting detached, but it's not real. It's not authentic. It's not based in real wisdom. 
that's another thing we have to explore and look at. In the Buddhist uh, psychology, in the teachings, the near enemy, that which disguises itself as equanimity, is indifference. I think that's so brilliant, you know, because we can easily appear, you know, unreactive, unengaged, unbothered, and yet we're just caught in indifference. Like, like we, we've, we, we've separated ourselves from the world in some way. We've, we've disengaged. It's a, a kind of denial of life and a disconnection with ourselves and with others. And we know people like this. We know people who really are proud of their detachment and their indifference and you know, their ability not to react. But I, I think that there is a, a still some fear in this state. It's a, a kind, it's a state that has some fear of engagement and fear of intimacy, fear of really being human, fear of our humanity. So it's not, it's not a, a, a true wisdom state, even though it may appear, it may look that way. True equanimity is not withdrawal. It's not indifference. But yet it's a, a wholehearted engagement with the world, an engagement where we're not getting lost, we're not getting overwhelmed with the conditions of life, where we're not getting caught in the forces of greed and hatred, but rather where we can engage in life, in the world, in a balanced way, in a way where we're really meeting the conditions of life as they are. I learned so much in my time in India. This is really where I did my equanimity practice because it was so difficult. It was a constant meeting with things, uh, situations uh, that I never had before through all of my senses and uh, sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touch and all of my aversions and my reactions to it, all the suffering and the poverty and the corruption and the sickness and, and the filth and you know, it was just so intense for an aversive type like myself. And I was constantly thrown back up against my, my reaction. I even went there the first time I went there in the mid-80s. I went as a teacher. I was a new teacher at that time. And I was so caught in this idea of, well, oh, I'm not supposed to be reactive. You know, I'm not supposed to be caught in my aversion. And yet that was the truth, and I was very tangled up in it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I was given the equanimity practice as I was doing my practices and, my, and, and hearing the teachings. And it was really the equanimity phrase that helped me survive in my years in India, and I, where I learned so much. And my phrase was, No matter how much I might wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. No matter how much I would wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And each time I would say that, I would just be thrown right back into reality, present time. I couldn't, unless I got back into my reaction and my aversion and my wanting, I was just left right back. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. I mean, I wish I could, you know, find that magic wand that could change the conditions that I was confronted with, but I was continually thrown back by this phrase. I was so grateful for it because the phrase really asked me to feel my helplessness, 
to feel the uncontrollability of things again and again, to feel the pain, to feel the grief that there is nothing I can do in these situations. Sometimes there's things we can do, obviously, and that's when I'm, when I'm not caught in my grief and my anger and my sorrow and I'm connected more with my equanimity and my balance, then, of course, I may have some sense of how to respond to the situation in a simple way, not in a grand way, but just maybe offering um, somebody uh, a, a, a sweater or, or buying somebody some food or... Um, just sitting and listening to someone speak or just being present for something that I'm witnessing, something so simple that makes a huge difference. Compassion and equanimity really come together in the face of pain. Compassion, which is the love that's turned towards my pain and the pain of others, it's really the compassionate heart, and the equanimity the equanimity that allows me to stay connected to myself, that holds me so I don't tumble into deeper states of grief and sorrow and where I don't get caught in my anger and my rage. This is really what's possible in our practices. So we practice, and the way we practice is we start where we are. We don't imagine that, you know, that we, that I am the Zen master that can be run through with a sword, you know, that's not true. You try that. It's like when Annie said she tried to, wanted to walk through the wall, you know, you do that, you suffer. It's dukkha. It's not going to work. The will is not going to create that. So you start where you are. It's like an onion. An onion has many, many layers to it, and you start with the most outer layer. You peel back the most outer layer of reactivity. You can't get to the center until you peel out the most outer layer. After that one, then you peel the next layer and the next layer. And eventually you get to the center. And the center, if you've ever really looked carefully at an onion, has a little empty hole in the middle of an onion. (laughs) There's no more layers. It's just empty. So you just start where you are with the reactivity that's present. You don't have to go right to the center. That's the most compassionate thing you can do. Interrupting that reactivity and receiving what is, standing under the waterfall of what is. Another one of my favorite quotes from um, Chogyam Trungpa, um, the Tibetan teacher. The lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to, con- uh, return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. It's a good thing to remember as we enter into the next phase here. Whether you're 
staying or leaving whatever situation, whatever conditions are arising now for you. Remembering that, wouldn't that be a good mantra to kind of remember? Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news (laughs) because it's the next test for us so that we can see ourselves, we can learn about ourselves, we can discover what's true so that we're not pretending, we're not deceiving ourselves, but we're looking directly and saying, wow, this is true. (laughs) What resources am I going to use now? What resources am I going to draw on to support myself in this situation? This is our practice. And I'll end with this uh, quote from Rumi, our wonderful teacher Rumi. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. Let's sit for a moment. 